0: So, the theme for this morning sermon is God's grace to the greedy and to the needy. Our wonderful music director wrote to the music team this week that the theme of this sermon is a bit odd. And what he meant by that, because I asked him, uh, what he meant by that was simply this that in every way, grace is odd. It's odd. Grace, you understand, the grace of God flows in one direction. It flows from God to us, from heaven to earth. But when it flows from heaven to earth, the recipients of that grace are so undeserving. We're selfish. We're proudful. We're self absorbed. We're greedy. We don't put the needs of others before our own. We're an unholy people. And it's God's grace that comes to break down all this sin and all this corruption and to rebuild a community that's full of hope and healing. It's all about grace. So we're going to look at that grace this morning. I think God's grace is abundant in our text this morning. But we have to kind of unpack a few things to get to the grace. We've got to see the mess before we see the beauty of God's grace here. And it's really, really messy. And the first thing that we're going to look at is what happens in a community when love is visibly absent? What happens in a community when there is no love anymore? When people take advantage of other people and put their needs before the needs of others? Well, the short answer is when this happens in a community, there's going to be suffering. In the absence of love, there's going to be pain. In the absence of love, there's going to be an abuse of power. In the absence of love, there's going to be loss, there's going to be grief, and there's going to be hurt in the absence of love. Verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Just so you understand. These were fellow Jews. They all came out of exile, at different times, I get it, back into Jerusalem. They were all recipients of God's grace coming back into Jerusalem. Some, you understand, if you read Ezra chapter 1, which is the book before us, you understand that when some of these people came out of um, exile, they were loaded. (laughs) Their neighbors were like, here, have some more silver and have some more gold, kind of like how they pillaged uh, uh, Egypt when they went to Canaan. They came with padded padded pockets full. And and, and Cyprus was like, we're we're just going to give you some more blessings. So there were a number of people that came into Jerusalem at that time fully loaded. That was the first cohort. The second, third, fourth. As others traveled and didn't receive the blessing of Cyrus or their neighbors, they came in impoverished. And they had to kind of build up their equity. Which, as some of you know, if you're new to Canada and, 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 and you are trying to build your equity, it takes a long time. And some of you are in that position right now. The outcry was severe. This outcry is, is a mixture between anger and powerlessness. If you can picture that. You're angry with what's going on at the injustice, but you're powerless to change it. Some of you have never been in that position, but some of you have. That's the cry. The recourse was to go to Nehemiah. There are three groups of people that come to Nehemiah, or at least three situations that are, that are, are addressed here with Nehemiah. Here's the first group, and I think the first group that comes to Nehemiah are the poorest. They're the poor of the poor of the poorest. Verse 2, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. When you are very poor, all you can consider and think about is whether you're going to have food on the table. We must get grain or we're going to die. That's this first group. The second group, they have a little bit more. The first group can't leverage their property. They can't sell anything. They can't get grain through the sale of their. No, nothing. They got nothing. The second group has a little bit more. They have some capital. They have some land, and they can leverage that. Verse three others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. They're saying, We, we, we are able to mortgage our house. We're able to refinance our, on our properties here. But that, that, that train of money is going to run out. And we're worried. Here's the third group. They couldn't pay their taxes. Verse four still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Each one of their situations was desperate, and each one of their situations pushed them into a situation that they didn't want to go into. And that would be the sale of their children into slavery. Ask any parent if they would like to sell their children into slavery to get enough money to put food on the table, and not a single parent would say, pick me. The first to go were young women, we read at the end of verse 5, which might mean that they were involved with the creditors in more ways than simply debt slavery. It's a very sad situation. It was desperate. And everything about this situation, however, was connected to the walls. They had committed themselves to rebuilding the walls, and at least in the short term, they could not care for their fields. That's why the women and the men were crying out together. The men were mostly working, the women were caring for their property and for the fields. They can like, we can't, we can't do this anymore, it's too hard. Added to that was the conflict that they had with with famine and whether the famine was coming to an end or whether the famine was over a number of years already. But the famine had left an effect on the crops and the crops were scarce, scarce. And then they had to pay the king's taxes. Artaxerxes did not rescind his policy when he sent Nehemiah. He didn't say, okay, the people around Jerusalem during the time of the rebuilding will be tax exempt. He didn't say that. They walked out in faith to rebuild these walls. And I believe that the people of Judeo kind of expected opposition from their neighbors. They were had their ears to the ground long enough to know that when they rebuilt these beautiful walls around Jerusalem, there would be opposition, but what they did not expect. And God's people should never have to expect that. Is disunity and an absence of love and conflict in the Church of Jesus Christ. Here amongst the people of God in Jerusalem. Everything about this situation was wrong, and Nehemiah was angry. The picture is one of burning with anger. He wasn't angry with the opposition from the outside. He was troubled by that, and he prayed, and God protected them. He was angry with the conflict in the inside. When he saw injustice among God's people, that should make us angry. And what we're going to learn here this morning and what we can see already in our text this morning is that what these noble people were doing, so-called noble people, at least the rich were doing, was not totally against God's law except for the charging of interest. Everything else was somewhat permitted in, in God's law. The issue was, one, that they were charging interest, but the issue was even bigger than that. The issue was that they didn't care for their fellow brothers and sisters. The, interest, the, the, the conflict was that they became capitalists, untethered in their capitalism. The, interest, the, 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 the issue was that they became so focused on money that they forgot about love. became cold-hearted capitalists when they should have become grace-filled caregivers. This made Nehemiah very angry. If I was to find a New Testament equivalent to what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5, I would turn, and I think some of you would turn with me, to the book of James. James deals with this rich-poor issue in the church as well. And this is what James says. He says in, in, in James chapter 1, verse 27, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Have you ever wondered, if you're familiar with the Scripture on this, have you ever wondered why James puts Um, looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself polluted by the world, why he puts those together? Have you ever wondered this? Is he just calling the, the church to be pure or is there something more going on here? I think if you read the context around James 1 and James 2, because he goes on talking about the rich and the poor and favoritism in the church and all that kind of stuff, That when he talks about being polluted by the world, it's this that typically the world does not have a heart for the poor. The world that we know it outside the church of Jesus Christ does not have a heart for the weak, for the marginalized. They let their balance sheet dictate their relationships. Making money and building your little kingdom on earth as your primary goal is against the very heart of Christ, and you are becoming polluted by the world. You're allowing the world's idol become your idol. And that idol that the world has adopted as almost a sanctioned idol is the idol of greed, It's the idol of greed. It's the idol of, I want more, and I'm never satisfied. Someone put it like this, as long as greed is stronger than compassion, there will always be suffering. As long as greed is stronger than compassion, there will always be suffering. And here in our text, greed has become a lot stronger than compassion. And so what he has to do in our text is expose the greed, that's where we go to next. He, he exposes the greed. You see, when people are being exploited and the rich are running roughshod over the poor, the leaders of God do not and cannot just pretend things will go away. No, the evil of greed in the church of Jesus Christ needs to be exposed for what it is. And it's ugly, it's very ugly. First, what he does is he calls the leaders together and he just states the facts with them. Whether they were listening or not, we do not know, but he moves from stating the facts to, the, to them to now um, holding this public forum where he gathers them all together and draws out the problem in front of a big public setting. Now, what's interesting is that he doesn't quote Old Testament scriptures around... Um, the law of God and how we're supposed to respect and keep each other uh, and love each other. He, de- he doesn't go there. But there's a few texts, of course, that are running through his head. They must be. The first text that's running through his head is Exodus 22, verse 25. It says this, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you're going to lend money, that's okay. Don't charge interest. Leviticus 25, verse 35 says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger, so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend the money, them money at interest, or sell them food at a profit. It was okay to loan the money. It was okay. And in fact, sometime after the famine or after the wall was built, repayment. You didn't want to create this codependency when dependency hurts. I get all that. And so did they. It was okay to loan money. Even Nehemiah did, verse 10 I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. What Nehemiah wasn't doing in his men, they were not taking their daughters or their sons as slaves they were not charging interest they were not taking their fields they were not taking their crops that's what they were doing but notice what he does to kind of expose the greed he 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 tells them not to do this but he appeals to their heart that's verse 8 as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us, and they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Exposed. When you have nothing to say, it means your guilty as charged. Then he continues in verse 9. So I continued, what, you, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God, quoting the Old Testament law on this? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? What about the nations? What are they going to say when you are doing this greedy activity with your own people? You know what greed does? Still does the same thing today. Closes your heart and closes your soul to the needs of others. It blinds you. It closes your heart to the very it closes your eyes to the very heart of Jesus Christ. It's impossible to love God and love your neighbor as yourself when you are greedy very interesting, I hope maybe you can have some time today to spend in James chapter 2 where James is really trying to find the word passionate maybe about this problem he talks about greed, he talks about favoritism he talks about this and then he talks about God's law of love because there's this inseparable connection, you cannot connect the two between greed and the love of God You show me someone who is passionate about becoming rich, about accumulating wealth and I will show you someone who has destroyed many relationships along the way and they become silos of their own making. You show me someone who is just really passionate about getting rich in this life and I will show you someone who doesn't have a lot of close friends and if they do, they're partners in crime typically. You might find it surprising this morning and some of you know this to be true. But one of the reasons I'm in ministry today is because by God's grace, I saw the evil of greed foment in my heart when I was 19 years old. Because that's what it does. And it scared me. Some of you know the story, and I don't want to elevate anything about me in this story at all. I want to foster a holy passion in your love for Christ. That's why I'm going to share a little bit of this story with you. It's my story for his glory. But I think the illustration can help us understand the power of greed in real time. I was in my first year of university. I was tracking towards a business, a business career, and I was basically offered a business firm, my dad's, by the time I was done. If I got my degree, it was all written out for me. I was a student at McMichael's School of Business and pushing hard. Truth be told, in my heart, I was gunning for being a millionaire in my mid-20s. That was my goal. That was a crazy goal, but that was my goal. I was a bit driven. Not anymore, though. During my first year, I was invited to run a painting franchise from May to August. This, the year was 1994. And with God's providence, I secured over six-digit figures in painting in one summer. I won awards, and I was promised a higher management position the following years. My, my career path was also opening wide, up, wide open where people say, man, you, you, you can be making a lot of money really quickly. And I thank God for what he did next. After the summer, he gave me a time to reflect on what happened. And I went silent. And I began to loathe the guy I was becoming. I had 12 guys and girls working for me, four painting crews, and each one of those relationships were strained in some way by the end of the summer. I paid them a minimum wage, which was $7 at that time. And what God was doing was exposing the greed in my heart. And God opened my eyes, and after that summer, I I, I didn't go to any more meetings with this company. I said, no, I don't want to be part of your management position here. After that summer, my business degree, in fact, had no more appeal for me because I was worried about my heart. When greed foments in your heart, it has no end to it. It's never satisfied. The following summer, my friend and I learned how to run a summer camp in Quebec. I came back and introduced Campfire to a group of people that partnered with me to start what we know as Campfire Today. Some of you have been there. Why share this? Because I don't want anyone to follow the same path that I did and hurt people along the way. And if you're in that path right now of greed and you are hurting people along the way, it's time to repent and take stock. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 has these very powerful words. It's very simple Whoever loves money never has enough, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is meaningless. I don't know if any of you struggle with greed in your workplace, in your company. Some of you are private business owners. Some of you have goals. Check them. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Greed does nothing good. It produces nothing good in you. Let's just close with this. It's grace then that has to take that heart that is Filled with a passion for greed to become passionate about Jesus Christ and the will of God. It's also grace that needs to muster up love and, and encouragement to those who are needy, who are being marginalized, even oppressed, exploited by those who have greed as a, as, a, as a raison d'etre for life, as a reason to be. Here's the grace in our text. To the needy, God heard their cry. Nehemiah is God's servant, God's agent for their protection, and his anger was a spirit induced anger. When, loved ones, we should be angry at injustice. We should be angry at what happens to the poor when they're disempowered. We should be angry when people are being exploited. We should stand with the world and condemn Qatar for their human rights abuses where thousands upon thousands of migrant workers have died to build these opulent stadiums for the goddess called soccer. So many are just turning a blind eye. The families of all those dead migrant workers are not turning a blind eye. We should cry out for the poor cry out for the disadvantaged, for the the disempowered, for the exploited. And by God's gracious hand, they got their estates back, they got their children back, and they recovered. And it seems by the end, because they all said amen, that there was reconciliation in the community. That's abundant grace. To the wealthy, who are exploiting the poor, God showed them grace too. This is the abundant grace of God. It was His grace that caused their sin to be exposed in the public square. When God exposes our sin in the public square, it's not because God wants to humiliate us. No, God wants to show us our need for forgiveness and the grace He has for us. What do you do when your sin is exposed? I think you begin with silence. Verse eight, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. If you have hurt someone or someone calls it and someone calls it out, let the weight of what you have done sink in. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to rationalize the sin away. Don't try to dissemble it. Don't try to recloak it. Just confess it. You are wrong if you've hurt someone by your actions. If there's a sin that God is exposing in your life right now that you have wronged somebody, make it right. That table is a table of unity, loved ones, of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. For Nehemiah's day, and I don't know, maybe it's the same for us today. The sin that had to be exposed was the sin of greed in all its ugly children. But it comes to me, it came to me as I was thinking about this text that the people of Israel, when they came back to Jerusalem, the Jews, when they came back to Jerusalem, really had a problem with money (laughs) and greed. It's very interesting that Malachi, the last book of the Bible, was written probably around the same time as Nehemiah and Ezra, maybe a little bit more. Maybe it was their parents, I don't know. This is what the Lord says to the people. This is like the last, second last book of the Bible. Sorry, the second last chapter in the Old Testament. This is what he says. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from your, my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? I want you back. I want to grow in this beautiful fellowship that, that I've promised you. How, do we, how are we to return? They ask, and then they, and, 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 and will a mere mortal rob God, he asks, God asks. And then he says this, you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? And then he tells them, in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, you're all under a curse, why? Because you're robbing me, that's what the Bible says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessings that there will not be room enough to store it. Do you love me or does money captivate your heart? That's what he's asking. God's calling his people again this morning to repent from the sin of greed. And if you're not supporting the church of Jesus Christ, loved ones, and you're a member here, you are sinning, full stop. You're robbing God. Greed has taken captive your soul. He's calling us all to repent. But it's His grace that exposes that sin. It's grace that provides hope if we are in need. It's grace that's evidenced on the cross. Jesus became absolutely poor for us so that we could become rich absolutely poor. Jesus was condemned so that we could be set free, enslaved so that we would never be enslaved. Whatever you have done, whatever your heart's cry is, I want to tell you this morning that your Savior's love and his grace is sufficient for you. It's Just a few quotes on grace I just want to remind you of this morning. And I want you to take this one, maybe take a picture of it. I think we need restraining grace as well as saving grace. That restraining grace is to keep us from becoming greedy, selfish, self-absorbed, all that kind of stuff. The essence of the doctrine of grace is that God is for us. Remember that this morning? If you have broken faith with God in certain areas of your money and your way you manage money and the way you run your business, whatever, God is still for you. Repent. The ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. When we who are so undeserving are received back into fellowship with Jesus and his love is evident and we are brought into this beautiful fellowship and this beautiful unity, this picture of Christian love and Christian harmony, when we are brought into that family and we are forgiven, we are the most blessed of all people. And so I say to you this morning, come back to him. Let his love and his grace motivate you this morning to love deeply, to give generously, and walk in harmony with each other for his sake. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace given us. I know the greedy, greed in my own heart. I've not been in a position in my life of being powerless really, but I know many who have. But I've been on the other side, in a position of power, and I think I have abused that power. Forgive me. Forgive us all. Forgive us all for for putting other things over you, for putting money and income and wealth and possessions and all that stuff over the needs of others and the building up of your kingdom. Humble us, O God, and remind us again this morning that you still love us and that your grace is sufficient for us, all of us, whatever the crime, whatever the sin, because Jesus died for it all We thank you so much for this forgiveness. You've set us free. You've broken the chains of injustice, but you've also broken the chains of the power of greed in our lives. Help us to pursue you now in Jesus' name. Amen.